sometimes an author's personal life has a profound impact on their writing, and this is very much the case for Mary Shelley. I didn't do any thorough research on her life until after I actually read Frankenstein, but after doing the thorough research, I can understand the many influences her personal life had on this book, which is why I wanted to start this episode talking more about her rather than the book Frankenstein itself. So she was born in the 1790s, I don't remember the exact year, to Mary Wollstonecraft, who was an author at the time and a, a very primary women's rights activist. And uh, she died shortly after giving birth to uh, Mary Shelley, I think a couple days. More on that later, but at age 16, she met Percy Shelley and they moved off together because her parents or her dad did not want her marrying an older man who had been married before. But um, if you're a literary enthusiast and you will have heard Percy Shelley, he was a pretty well-known romantic author at the time. And he wrote, if you haven't heard him, look up the poem Ozymandias by him. It's one of like the most famous poems ever. It's awesome. He was awesome. He was a romantic author, but they got married. Um, and she, shortly after getting married... Uh, at age 16, she gave birth to a child that died shortly after. So um, you can kind of imagine her trauma already. Apparently, she felt guilty her whole life that her mom died after giving birth to her. She has a child of her own that dies. Somewhat of a traumatic upbringing, I would say. Um, but she and her husband at the time, Percy Shelley, went on this trip to Geneva um, to meet up with Lord Byron, who, even if you're not a literary enthusiast, you've probably heard of him. Huge deal, a total titan of literature, famous poet. You can look up his stuff, B-Y-R-O-N. Um, but they had a trip planned to go to Geneva and, and hang out together, but there was some big volcano that erupted at the time. Big famous happening, and it was pretty much dark all summer, and the air quality was bad, so the volcano essentially forced them to be inside, where they spent time cloistered up together, hanging out, doing author stuff together. And Lord Byron issued a challenge to all of them um, to write the best scary story, or maybe his ghost story, but the, the exact details elude me. But it was from this competition that Frankenstein was written. And keep in mind, she was 18 years old at the time. Uh, it was in 1818, so 200 years ago. Um, very impressive, but it was out of that competition, friendly competition, that she wrote Frankenstein. And um, the story itself starts with this ship captain named Robert Walton. And he's on this ship, uh, which is somewhere in England, somewhere around London, and it's bound for the North Pole. And we gather that Walton, Robert Walton, is a man of high ambitions, lofty dreams, uh, he's an explorer. He's all about exploring and discovering scientific discoveries. And it's his undying ambition that led him to this journey for the North Pole. Uh, I wrote down a quote from a letter he wrote to his sister in the plot to give you an idea of who this man is. Uh, he writes, I feel a cold northern breeze play upon my cheeks, which braces my nerves and fills me with delight. Do you understand this feeling? This breeze, which has traveled from the reasons towards which I am advancing, gives me a foretaste of those icy climes. Inspirited by this wind of promise, my daydreams become more fervent and vivid. I try in vain to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of frost and desolation. It ever presents itself to my imagination as a region of beauty and delight. 
There, Margaret, the sun is forever visible, its broad disk just skirting the horizon and diffusing a perpetual splendor. We may be wafted to a land surpassing in wonders and in beauty every region hitherto discovered on the habitable globe. Its productions and features may be without example, as the phenomena of the heavenly bodies undoubtedly are in those undiscovered solitudes. What may not be expected in a country of eternal light? Um, and just reading this out louder, I realize uh, what awesome prose it is. And you see this throughout the book that Mary Shelley uses the uh, dialogue or the letters written between characters as kind of a chance to show off her skill and prose. At 18 years old, it's, it's fascinating. But Walton himself, he's engrossed by this idea of the North Pole. He kind of heaped together a ship of very ragtag guys who he thought we were exhibited half the ambition that he did. Um, and he's going to the North Pole to find whatever scientific discoveries may await him there um, to study the stars and stuff like that. And I, I think he's supposed to be a caricature of the imprudent nature of scientific ambition and monomaniacal obsessions. And like most people, um, like Robert Walton, who live in this constant state of ambition or obsession or whatever you want to call it, he lacks friends. Uh, in another letter to his sister, he laments not having made any strong friendships during his life, and he attributes that to he can never meet someone who has is as ambitious as he is. So he's on the ship. Uh, he writes his sister every couple of days. The ship departs, and almost immediately it gets stuck in these vast ice sheets, so the ship can't move. And uh, they look out for any sign of anything, and they see this man in near-death status on this dog sled, or whatever they're called. Um, and he rolls up to the ship, and they rescue him. They pull him up, they nurse him back to health, and he introduces himself as... Victor Frankenstein. So that's where you get the name Frankenstein from. It's not actually the name of the monster, uh, sorry, spoiler alert, that he creates, but it's the name of the doctor himself, Victor Frankenstein. Um, and as soon as Victor Frankenstein is nursed back to health, he begins retelling his life story to Robert Walton. Um, and then we kind of see a, a kind of change where Walton becomes not so much the protagonist, but he's just a conduit through which, through which we hear the story of Victor Frankenstein's life. Um, and Victor Frankenstein tells him that he's always been into science his whole life. Uh, from a little kid, he was super into science, but he was into the underworld of science, if you will. He read alchemy and galvanism. He name drops Cornelius Agrippa, Albertus Magnus, who were, in his words, the lords of his imagination. And so we see that even from a kid, he had that seed ingrained in him. Um, and this brings me back to last week's episode of Gilles de Rey. I didn't talk about this there, but um, Gilles de Rey was this horrible, evil tyrant, and he uh, recalls his childhood reading about Caligula, who is this horrible, corrupt uh, Roman emperor, and he says that those images kind of festered around in his mind and bloomed into something later in life, and that's kind of what we're seeing here uh, with Frankenstein talking about these galvanists and alchemists, and that seed was just ingrained in him as a kid. He says... I read and studied the wild fancies of these writers with delight. They appeared to me treasures known to few beyond myself. I have described myself as always having been imbued with the fervent longing to penetrate the secrets of nature. So that's the second time already we've seen that word fervent, which is like a big word and very much relates to the rest of the story. Um, but we, I think it was a little uh, literary thing that Mary Shelley did here that she's trying to hint us to connect the two characters, Frankenstein and Walton, that they're similar they have this fervent passion for, sorry, fervent passion, 
which is probably why Victor Frankenstein chose Walton to be the one to tell his entire life story to. But after his childhood, Frankenstein says that uh, he goes to college, I forget where, unimportant. He goes to school, and he, he goes and meets with his teachers, and one teacher laments his self-studies with Agrippa and Magnus. He says, that's a waste of time. I'm going to encourage you on a new path to study natural philosophy, you know, quote, real science. But the seed that Victor had once planted was already beginning to germinate, and he turned back to alchemy and galvanization and ultimately decided that he found a way to extend beyond the natural cycle of life and kind of discover the purpose of life, if you will, and so began his huge project. So he locks himself up for months in his apartment room. Um, he decides to create some type of amalgamation of a human body and bring it to life, also known as galvanization. So he does grave digging, sorry, grave digging to get these body parts. And again, we see this monomaniacal obsessions that took hold of him. He cuts off contact with everybody. He doesn't leave his room except to find these body parts. And his original goal was to make the monster, is what he calls him. He wants to make the monster beautiful. He's supposed to be tall, broad shoulders with slicked back hair. And eventually, of course, he cr finishes his project, brings it to life, and what he created was far worse or at least far uglier than what he in intended. He says, how can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion and I had selected his futures as beautiful. Beautiful, great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuries only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. So not exactly beautiful, but something half real and half alien. And there's something about these half real, half alien beings that I think frighten us humans the most. We cannot distance ourselves from the reality of their being enough to totally alienate them. We almost empathize or sympathize with them. And as a prelude to reading all these gothic fiction books, or as a primer, I should say, as a primer to reading all these books, I got this book of essays, basically, by this guy named Mark Fisher. It's called The Weird and the Eerie, and he talks about what exactly... Does it mean to be eerie? What does it mean to be weird? What is it that makes our skin crawl in the most fundamental sense? And there's a little passage from the introduction of that book, which I went back and read, and uh, it relates very much to Frankenstein. So he says, Mark Fisher says, The eerie concerns the most fundamental metaphysical questions one could pose, questions to do with existence and non-existence. Why is there something here when there should be nothing? The unseeing eyes of the dead, the bewildered eyes of the amnesiac, these provoke a sense of the eerie, just as surely as an abandoned village or a stone circle will do. So surely this is the same uh, metaphysical predicament that the monster that Frankenstein made is. He's here, he's tangible, he's real, he's alive, sort of. It kind of depends on your definition of alive, but by all means he should not be here by any laws of nature. Uh, so he resembles a human just enough for us to recognize him as that, but he's like nine feet tall. He's got these watery eyes and shriveled complexion, which are features that are alienated from our consciousness. And so we kind of half alienate him as well. Eerie indeed. And that's where you see the gothic uh, part of this gothic book coming in. And it's this horrible, ugly, wretched aesthetic that kind of 
wakes Victor Frankenstein up from his obsessive stupor. He's appalled by his creation and he sees the monster and he flees the college entirely and returns.